turn with me, if you would, to the book of James. Turn the page into the second chapter of the book of James where um, he begins um, very, uh, very practical application of the things he's laid out for us. We're uh, engaging in this series this fall as we order our communal life together around God's word and specifically around this letter, uh, looking at how does, it, how does faith work? How does, it, how does faith actually get into the shoe leather of daily life and find itself um, out in the world in which we live, not just in theory, but in practice? So this morning, James chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 13. I'll invite you to stand as we hear God's word read aloud this morning. James writes this, he says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Or if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised? To those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For, the judge, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord, and it is absolutely true, and it is given to us this day in love. Let's pray. And now, O oh God, we pray that you, the righteous one, the one who has graciously and lovingly and persistently pursued your people for whom you have called as your own throughout all ages, that you would be at work here, among us, in us, through us, even now, your spirit would bring um, life where there is hardness, that your spirit would bring 
um, would bring grace where there is rebellion, that there would be, um, that there would be a fresh uh, anointing of the Spirit of God that would, that would fall upon the people of God even this day. Father, that you would shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as myself. We pray that you would forgive the one who speaks his sins, for there are many. Our desire is to see Jesus in him only. And so we make these prayers in his name. Amen. October is the month where many churches around the, around the world are beginning to um, prepare for and uh, celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation where uh, Martin Luther took a few questions that he had about what was happening in the life of the Roman church. Uh, and as you would do when you wanted to have a formal discussion about weighty matters, he, he nailed these questions to the front door of the church at Wittenberg, saying, can we talk? 500 years later, we see what has happened in the church as God has um, um, worked in the life of his people to see that salvation is through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, under the scriptures alone, for to God alone belongs the glory. It is no secret that the book of James was troublesome to Luther um, for one who had spent so much of his time really beginning to um, see and grasp the gospel of grace, how there is no work, nothing that we can do, nothing apart from the saving work, the gracious love of God and Jesus Christ to save ourselves. And then James comes in and it doesn't fit as neatly as Luther would have liked. Maybe you experienced that tension too. I read this week one uh, helpful description about the book of James where the author writes and says, James, unlike Paul, doesn't break the gospel apart to show you what it is. James assumes the gospel and shows you what your life will look like if you believe it. There is no conflict between what James would say to us and what Paul would say to us. Paul is showing us all the pieces and parts of the car. James is showing us what the car does when it gets out on the road. I said last week, as we brought ourselves to the end of chapter one, that James was setting up the um, the that the thesis of where he was going to move forward in bringing his argument. If you look back, uh, if you've got your Bible and look back at the end of chapter 1, uh, James says this. We'll look at uh, verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is James's whole heart here when we look at how the gospel gets into shoe leather, shoe leather and applied into our lives is what does it look like for God's people to be God's people in the world, not because of what they do, but because of what Jesus has done in them. Should it make a difference? James says it does. Don't just hear God's word. You're not a sponge. This is, you're not learning more trivia. You are, getting, you are getting a window in to the throne room of heaven and hearing God Almighty's heart as he has given it and revealed it in Jesus. Go and be that people in the world. And so James in chapter 2 sets up... Um, what I'm calling this morning, um, the problem outside of us, the problem inside of us, and then he, he gives us uh, a solution. The problem outside of us uh, for James begins in verse 2 of chapter 2. In ch- uh, chapter 2, verse 2 through verse 4, we see James giving a scenario. Now, we don't really know if this is something that's actually happening in, in, the, uh, in the churches right now or if this is just more parabolic. But what seems to be going on is someone who is, it's very clear that they are of status in the world, right? They have the right clothes on. They have the right jewelry on. They have status in the world. And someone else that comes in the room clearly doesn't have status. And so the church looks at the one with status and says, oh, We're so glad you're here. Here, come and have the good seat, the one that the air conditioning vent doesn't blow right on. That seat, you sit there. It sounds really good. The acoustics are good. Oh, you're here. Well, we've got a folding chair back there, and the AC blows really hard in that corner. Um, This is what James is saying. This is a problem. You're showing partiality. Now, why is it? Why is it that James would go, uh, when he's beginning to talk about what pure and undefiled religion would look like, that we would care for widows and orphans, that we would, that we would um, care for people in their affliction, that we would keep ourselves unstained from the world. And then he goes, by the way, that guy that came in dressed nicer than the other guy, don't, don't do that again. What's he doing? Well, it's brilliant, isn't it, that James would draw our attention here, because Many of us operate under the, uh, under the notion that there, are, that there are big sins and there are little sins, and there are things that are really bad that Christians really shouldn't do, and then there's the other stuff that, I mean, it's not good, but everybody kind of does it. And James says, no, you can't. You can't actually do that. Look, he says in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brother, says, not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. See, people will read James and think that James really has an axe to grind against those who have material wealth. And he doesn't. That's not the problem that he's addressing. The problem that James is addressing is that we look at people in the world and make a judgment about them, generally speaking, because we want to be like them. 
we do this all the time, don't we? We hang out with people that we, that we want to be like or that we have an affinity for, and we stay away from people who aren't much like us or, or who we think might be um, uh, too different for social comfort. And so we kind of stay away from them. And, um, and James says this is a problem. So allow me, if you would, a, a brief excursus that I hope will come back around and make sense. You are more than welcome, by the way, to tell me if it does or if it doesn't. Later. I was meeting with uh, a young woman who is um, uh, working with a counseling practice up here in Frisco. She's from the area. And I asked her, um, I asked her if, if she had any insight, because uh, my family and I have been here now for close to five years, and I said, do you have any insight about what kind of the, the, the greatest, most presenting existential angst is in North Dallas? What people often come to you, uh, what's been kind of the breaking point in their life? And she said, have you ever heard of the, the concept of the $30,000 millionaire? I said, no, do tell. She said, in this area particularly, um, if you can get out of your house in the morning be somewhat put together, put a smile on your face, make it through the frenetic pace of your day, and come back home with no one suspecting that you're a wreck, then you have won the day. Proverbially, you have people making $30,000 a year trying to portend as if they are millionaires. And so... You're living into the margins of your life. You're living into the, um, the very um, barest resources of your time, your emotional, uh, your emotional um, well-being, your, uh, your finances and everything else because of this desire, um, this very deep desire, because of this deep pressure to keep up appearances. Because here's the thing. Oftentimes, when people go and, and show preference to those who are wealthy, like they were doing in James's day, it's, it's not necessarily because um, the wealthy have something to, to add to them. In fact, James is going to say something more about that in verses 5 through 7 in just a moment. It's actually because the poor remind them of what they're trying to not be themselves, and they don't want to be reminded of who they really are. Anne Lamott um, wrote this, um, and I thought it was um, amazing. Um, it's, these are all obviously dripping with sarcasm. I just need you to, especially for some of you note takers, like don't start writing this down as, as like rules for life. These are sarcastic. <laughs> she says that she's learned about these five things, about what it takes to be an adult. Number one, you must not have anything wrong with you or anything different about you. Number two, if you do have something wrong or different about you, you really need to correct it. You need to be able to pass under all circumstances. Number three, if you can't correct it or change it in any way, you should just pretend that you have. It's not a problem anymore. Good job. If you can't even pretend not to have corrected the situation, you should just not show up. 
because it's very painful for the rest of us to see you in your current condition. (laughs) Number five, if you're going to insist on showing up, you should at least have the decency to be ashamed. Is that not the world in which we live? Get it together or else. And so we'll do everything that we can do to be the $30,000 millionaire, to take on whatever we need to take on, to, to live in the right zip codes and drive the right cars and take the right vacations and dress the right way and everything else so that for the love we can get home at the end of the day having won the day because we ourselves do not want to look like the poor ones, the needy ones, the not put together ones. And it's out of this deep well of insecurity within us comes the instinct to prefer certain people over others. We do this because we're trying to advance our own social status, right? We try and get around people who can make us look better. Or we're trying to get around people who can ultimately give us a leg up on the world. And you know what James says that that, that is? He says that stinks, it's not actually good. But it doesn't seem that, like that big of a deal. Everybody, after all, does it. Verses six, 5, 6, and 7. James says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones to drag you into court? See, what James is saying here is in that day, uh, wealth would have been concentrated around, it would have been concentrated around land ownership and um, uh, farms and uh, grain and livestock. And so wealth was not something that you went to Bank of America and withdrew from ATM. Wealth was something that you amassed as you owned land and, and livestock and grain. So the way, that you, uh, the way that you became more wealthy was to acquire more land, more livestock, more grain. And, and so what was happening was here you are not the rich ones, he's asking the church, the ones who oppress you. Um, these are the ones that... Um, why, he said, why would you want to esteem them? He's not saying that wealth is bad, but culturally, these are the things that are being done to the Christians at the hands of the ones with status. They're oppressing you. They're, they're dragging you to court. They're blaspheming the honorable name by which you are called. Um, one of the things that was happening uh, in the dragging to court, uh, because they had wealth, because they had status, they could actually pervert the systems of justice. Uh, to bring people um, to these sham trials so that they could actually exact and get more, um, more wealth. So James says, if that's happening, why do you want to be like them? And why do you want to give them places of esteem and honor and all of that? Well, I think I know why. Because there is a desperate, um, there is a desperate self-improvement project that is always at work within us. Because we hear all the time 
from all, the, all of the usual places, from our parents, from our kids, from our neighbors, from within ourselves, that you are not enough. And so if there could just be someone worse than me, I'd be happy. It's oftentimes why bullies are some of the most insecure people in the room. They need to show strength as a diversion tactic so that there's someone else that's noticed, not them. And when the wealthy come in, we move over to them, the people that have their lives together so that we can look like we also have our lives together. Not when the poor come in, the people that can't hide it, the people that are at the margins of society, the people that haven't made the right choices, the people where life has just caught up with them and they can't get it all together. And yet what God says through James is, isn't it weird that God is the one that actually prefers the misfit and the mess and the marginalized and the one that can't get their life together and the one who can't actually put on the right religious face. It was the prostitute and the tax collector and the poor and the marginalized and the uneducated that God brought in and made the standard bearers of his kingdom through Jesus as he sent them out into the world to plant and establish churches. There's things that we do all the time, externally, that aren't right. We operate under the yoke of the pressure of a self-improvement project. But James says it's not just that that's the problem. It's what's going on inside that's the problem. He says in verses 8 and following, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you will love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. As I said in the beginning, favoritism or partiality seems like a really petty place to begin the test of whether or not we possess true religion. Everybody, after all, has their preferred set of people they like to hang out with. But remember what I said at the beginning. James is presuming that we believe the gospel, and so he's showing us what our lives will look like if we believe it. And if we believe the gospel, it isn't enough that we outwardly do the right things. The real test is what's welling up on the inside. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. The lessons that Anne Lamott learned about being an adult and so pithily put in those five rules of how to survive in this world are all about putting on appearances. It's all misdirection. It's smoke and mirrors. 
It's the $30,000 millionaire. If I can just leverage myself enough to get a, a, a decent car. If I can just get my kid in the right sports league. If I can just live north of that place that you don't want to live, or south, or east, or west. It's get enough of the big stuff right, and maybe people will overlook the little stuff that doesn't add up. Now, that's a problem. Because we bring that survival, self-improvement mentality all the way to the throne of grace itself. And we say, maybe if I've got enough of the big stuff right, the little stuff gets overlooked. The problem is, as James says, poor people can't hide the fact that their life is a mess. And we don't want to be around messy people and remind ourselves what a mess, in fact, we are. We want to be around people that have their lives together. So this is what we're doing. We're, we're all the time misdirecting. We're minimizing. We're emphasizing. We're, 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 we're trying to look really good to ourselves in one part of our lives and think that our goodness is going to, to make up for the messy part of our lives that we keep well hidden away. You know the reason why, as a counselor, she said this is what she sees in the area? It's because, generally speaking, that hiding away only works for so long. Pretending to be something and someone that you're not only works for so long. And eventually what happens is the body says, I give up. And you can't hide, you can't pretend, and you end up collapsing. Not a sign of weakness, it's the body's cry for help. No, what we see here is... um, We bring the same um, exhausting, uh, debilitating um, treadmill of constantly trying to be on and perform and do the right stuff. And we bring it to God and we say, but don't you see, it's going to be harder to get rid of me now because of all the good stuff that I've done. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. James doesn't get it, let us get away with this formulation that there is some sort of sliding scale. The law is all or nothing in its requirements. Our obedience in, uh, in one area doesn't make up for our disobedience in another area. James says that if we break one of the laws, we're guilty of the whole law. Commit lust in your heart, you're guilty of, of murder too. There's no little laws. And we're to speak and act as those who are all in the same boat. Listen. Some people think of obedience as a pile of good deeds. The pile gets a little bit larger with each good deed and a bit smaller with each sin. The more good deeds and the larger the pile, the more God is pleased. But as James sees it, obedience is not like a pile of good deeds. Obedience is like a pure sheet of glass. 
And disobedience is like a brick hurled at the glass. It's not just a smaller pile. It's a shattered pane of glass. My grandfather learned this lesson about sheets of glass. Um, growing up, they, the house they lived in had a sliding glass uh, porch door. I always wondered why my grandmother kept decorations and um, uh, various uh, bits of uh, stained glass and other things constantly affixed to the same glass. And then I heard the story that one day Grandpa was going very quickly um, out into the backyard. Grandma had just cleaned the glass. And um, he actually did make it onto the porch. It just wasn't through an open door. See, our, our disobedience is not like just making a, a, a pile of good stuff a little smaller. It's that single brick through the pane of glass. The whole thing shattered. You're not putting that back together. If you're guilty of, of, of one, you're guilty of the whole law. We might not be guilty of murder, but by showing or preferring uh, or striving for favoritism. It's like murdering the poor. It despises the poor. It's a form of hatred. It's a form of murder. And, and so to not be only hearers, but doers of the word is, as James says in verse 12, to so speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty, because to break the law is to reject the lawgiver. The reason that we drive cars on roads is because cars were made to run on roads. The reason that we are obedient to the law is not because we're trying to get God to like us, but it's because God loves us and this was who we were made to be. People in God's image who beat with God's heart, you see. And James says, but wait a minute, if you say that you're a Christian, if you say that you love God, but in fact it doesn't work itself out in your life, then maybe this is like in the car, the check engine light coming on. Maybe there's a problem. So if the problem is not only outside of us and not only in, but it's also inside of us, what's the solution? I skipped over verse 1, but I want to go back there. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, scholars and translators have wrestled a lot with what James meant there. If you were to literally translate it, it would read, the one who is the glory. This is not necessarily a title that we see given to Jesus anywhere else in the New Testament. And it is a title, by the way. It doesn't, it doesn't translate as an attribute or a quality or a description. It's a title. James is saying that Jesus is the living embodiment of God's glory. We, we've seen God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ, haven't we? We know that though he was rich, 
Yet for our sake, he became poor. And because when we were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, he counseled us to buy gold that we couldn't afford freely from him, that we might become rich, white garments for our nakedness, and balm for our eyes that we might see. He came right down to where we were, taking our nature upon him, taking our sin upon him, taking our curse upon him, bringing our blinded minds the light of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ. In other words, it was in Christ that God the Father shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when James says here, let us show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, to depart from what we have learned only from God in Christ Jesus is to become for ourselves little judges, as James said in verse 4. Have you not been made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Little g gods who have our faces turned away from him towards our own self-interests. We show favoritism outside of us because we are glory haunted and the wound of Eden still has us running to find in ourselves at the expense of others. We have, we're, we're running to find glory in ourselves at the expense of others instead of in Jesus, which he freely gave at his expense. We make a big show of what we are obeying externally while continuing as lawbreakers internally because we're still acting as if we can add to the merit of God in Jesus and make God happier with us. That's a counterfeit glory. James says the way that all of this is made better is to hold to the faith in Jesus. It's only when we are so filled up by the glory and goodness of Jesus that we can see others and ourselves the way that we are seen by him. Look at what he says in uh, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says that the way that all of this is made better is to hold to the faith in Jesus. Our values and priorities and activities must be ever governed by the definition of true glory displayed in the person, conduct, and work of Jesus Christ. Who who is the one that you show partiality towards? Who do you want to be like? Who's the one that you show partiality against? Who's the one that you don't want to be like? There's plenty of talking points right now in our society. I don't need to grab them all. You know what they are. They're plastered all over your social media feed, news feed, every day. 
You have everybody around you telling you who you should hate and who you should love. Who's against you and who's for you. How many of those talking points that you're soaking in every single day are giving you the mind of Christ to say who you should love and who you shouldn't? Who do you show partiality towards? Do they stand up at football games or do they kneel? That's just one of the examples. Who are you trying desperately to not be? Because you're afraid if people were to find out who you really are, you'd be the one who was the poor one walking in the room that everyone else would walk away from. So what if you've been the one that's shown partiality, favoritism? What if your heart has been a mess and you've tried to pile up the good deeds and hope that it would overwhelm the pile of bad deeds? Let me tell you some things not to do. Don't excuse it. Don't say, well, they're wrong and I'm right. I was provoked. Don't deny it by pointing to a pile of good stuff and saying, but really when you consider it on balance, is it that bad? Don't succumb to shame and give up on trying and keep putting on the happy face and pretending to be the $30,000 millionaire in God's kingdom. And whatever you do, don't double down the day and say, well, I'm just going to try harder next time. Because I can tell you where, you're, where you will end up when you try harder. You'll end up in my office or the counselor's office because eventually fatigue will set in and you'll be exhausted and you'll collapse. You were never designed to have a self-salvation project. You were never designed to be self-improvers. You were fallen beyond repair and beyond hope. And God in his mercy sent Jesus to do the thing that you could never do on your own. So you don't try and excuse your sin, deny your sin, cover up your sin, or collapse under the shame of your sin. You take your sin and all of yourself and you go to Jesus and you receive the glory that is his because mercy triumphs over judgment. Repent, believe, and walk in the newness of life today that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. You are not to be the same person that you were when you walked in this room. And it's not because you heard a good sermon. It's because you had an encounter with the living God in Christ. And by the power of that spirit at work in you, he changed you. And you can't explain it any other way than he did it. Bring your broken glass to Jesus. The shattered broken glass of all of your disobedience and all of your law breaking and receive his glory and walk in his grace. You don't need your works, you need his, because mercy triumphs over judgment.